Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, good morning, everyone. We're continuing our study in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're looking at the grace of exile in this book, that Christians in Peter's day were being exiled for their faith. They were being pushed to the margins of their society for their Christianity. And so Peter wrote to them about what Christianity could look like in that kind of time. And I believe we're in the similar kind of time today. And so First Peter helps us to understand how to live in the grace, God's grace, God's power, God meeting us in times of exile. Now today we're going to look at First Peter 3, verse 1 through 6 in a message called Exile Wives. So we're beginning to look at marriage. So let's read our passage together today. Verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now we'll look at verse 7 in our next study together next week, but let's read it together just to get the complete section. He talked to wives In verse 7, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, the history of marriage as we approach this passage is, of course, fraught with ugliness and despair. You know, in many cultures, and societies, women have been treated as property or treated as objects of someone's desire, often without any recourse. But fortunately, the gospel gives us hope. Jesus, he envisioned marriage as going back to the Garden of Eden, where husband and wife were one, one flesh, helping and serving one another in a sacrificial, covenantal, two-person community. So as believers, we know that the gospel does beautiful things to marriage. It takes marriage from the world of contract. You know, if you make me happy, I will try to make you happy. And it brings it into the world of covenant. I'm here for you no matter what. It takes marriage from the realm of risk. You know, I'm... Uh, I hope that this relationship doesn't crush me or end me. And it brings it into the realm of safety. I am completely known and I am still safe with this person. It takes marriage from a competition between the sexes. I'm better than you. And it brings it to a longing 
to compliment the other person. How can I help you flourish? It takes marriage from the realm of law to the realm of grace. This is what the gospel does to marriage. The gospel is good for marriage. Now, it's with this knowledge that the passage that we just read might be initially shocking to us. It's filled with words like subjection or submission or Lord or weaker there in verse 7. Some of the phrases make modern people cringe. And this is actually ironic for two reasons. First, the original hearers of this passage, including the slaves that we looked at in our last study together, would have felt that these words were affirming and empowering. Slaves and wives in the society that Peter was writing to were not given the dignity of sorting out their own individual response to God. Society had an expectation of them, and they were not consulted in the process. Here, however, the apostle addresses them as they are, human beings made in the image of God, people who could make decisions that glorified God. And the second reason that our modern repulsion to some of these phrases is ironic is that we would never have had that repulsion unless the gospel had come. In societies where Jesus' message has never taken root, the rights of women, the rights of the poor, and the rights of children are not taken seriously. It's only because of Jesus' influence in our culture that we have these emotions in the first place. Okay, all that said, we have a great opportunity in front of us. God has a vision for how his people should live. We're a holy nation, Peter has told us in this letter, inside unholy nations. We're an alternate society inside mainstream societies, which means that our marriages will operate differently, or should at least, from the world around us. So how does God want us to live? What does exilic Christianity or what does exilic marriage look like? And over the next three weeks, including today, we're going to try to answer that question. This week, we're going to focus on exile wives. Next week, exile husbands. And then I want to take one additional week to look at these seven verses that we just read to glean principles for dating from this passage, exile dating. I think the timing for all of this is perfect because uh, this coming Saturday morning at the point that I'm uh, releasing this teaching to you, the pastors and our wives are hosting a brief marriage conference for the people of our church. And you can register for that Saturday morning conference by clicking events at the bottom of calvary.com. But I want to try one additional thing over the next three weeks. I want to talk to you a little bit more about marriage, but not just alone with my wife, Christina. So during the next three Sundays, if you have questions about marriage and dating and this passage, I want you to text your questions to our church number. And after this three-week series, Christina and I will sit down in the studio and answer some of the questions that the team gives to us. And if everything goes according to plan, we'll release those to you in the week after the recording. So let's have a little fun. Let's give this a shot. Let's try it. We want to talk to you a little bit about our marriage and encourage you and help you perhaps with some of the things you're wondering about in your married life or in your single life for the glory of God. So let's grow 
together. Okay, I also wanted to mention, before I jump into the passage again, that this entire subject, this entire passage, it really can be a delicate passage. You know, many in the church would like to be married, but are not married. So when hearing messages about marriage, it can be challenging. It can bring up discouragement or pain, perhaps. Uh, Many marriages are filled with pain. Some Christian marriages are only half Christian because one spouse is not in Christ and does not want to pursue him. And some marriages are downright dangerous uh, for especially the wife. Nothing Peter says here is meant to put a woman in danger of any kind. If a man is abusive or threatening Peter's exhortation that wives be subject or submissive to their husbands, it was never meant as an excuse for an abusive environment. But we have to push through all of our discomfort in thinking about this subject because the health of our church's marriages has a major impact on our community. We all, whether single or married, need a vision for marriage. So for today, we're gonna look at exile wives. How does the apostle see them? What are Christian wives to be like. Here's the first thing. Number one, exile wives, number one, have Jesus as their model. Exile wives have Jesus as their model. He said in verse one, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, over the past three weeks, we've noted a theme of submission. Citizens in chapter two were meant to be subject to the governing authorities. Servants, also in chapter two, were meant to be subject to their masters, and today, wives were to be subject, are to be subject to their husbands. Now, Peter began this exhortation to subjection with a word, likewise. That's how he starts out this section. It was a way of drawing the wives back to the same motivation that the servants tapped into. Peter had just told them all about Jesus, how he did not return hostility for hostility. He did not verbally respond to threats. He sacrificed himself for those who sinned against him, and he entrusted himself to the Father who would justly judge everyone for their actions. And Jesus is every believer's model. I think it's clear that Peter thinks this way. He's not just saying this is for the wives, but for everyone. He doesn't think these aspects are only for servants and wives, but for every Christian. But beyond drawing their attention back to Jesus, Peter wanted wives to, just like Jesus, was subject to the authorities while committing himself to God. He wanted them to submit themselves to their husbands while committing themselves to God. Now to me, once a Christian marriage has devolved into a discussion about submission, it's in serious trouble. It will likely never really be the central issue in a thriving marriage. In fact, in a healthy marriage, there will be lots of mutual submission. In Ephesians 5, when when Paul addressed this subject, before he told Christian wives to submit to their own husbands as unto the Lord, He said to the believers that they should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Just like when you approach a single lane bridge, you know, sometimes you'll see these on a small country road, you know, just one lane, only room for one car at a time to make it across in one direction. And there will be a yield sign on both sides of that small bridge. There's a mutual submission, looking to the other side, seeing if anybody is coming. That's, in a sense, I think, the kind of submission that a healthy married Christian couple should have to one another. The second that the husband starts telling his wife that she needs to submit, the dude is lost. I mean, that's just not gonna be a healthy situation. Okay, but all that said, mutual submission, I don't want to diminish the significance of Peter's words or the significance of Paul's words when he talked about this subject. Some have tried to do that. Some have tried to dilute the word subjection or submission to mean something like being lovingly thoughtful or considerate. But this is not a legitimate way to see this word or to use this word. Partly because every time the word is used in the New Testament, it speaks of submitting to the authority of another. As a child, Jesus, the Bible says, submitted to his parents. Demons, the Bible says, were subject to Jesus and even at times his disciples. The Bible says that citizens are subject to the government. The universe and unseen spiritual powers are subject to Christ. Jesus is submissive to the Father. Church members are subject to church leaders and to Christ. And we are all meant to be subject to God. And none of those roles are ever reversed in the Bible. All this to say, it's clear that even though a healthy marriage will display mutual submission, the idea of submission flows in a specific direction. In the home, the husband ought to take the lead. I pray, and I'm gonna hash this out next week, I pray that it's loving, servant leadership like Christ for his bride kind of leadership, but the husband is to take the lead. Now, none of this should be ever taken as a pathway to chauvinism. This is not Peter's way of saying that men are better. When Paul built his case for submission, he appealed to the creation. Adam and Eve were made equal in God's sight, but God gave each of them a role to play before him and each other. But this is often hard for us to understand because we usually think of leadership as a position to be earned, not bestowed. So the person with the most schooling, the most talent, the most success, we think that's the person that should take the lead. The leader, we think quite often, is better. But the apostles didn't see the leadership of the husband as a result of his quality, but his calling. To take the lead in the home is not a position to be earned, but one bestowed from the Father, Father God, through the Son to Christian husbands. So what is submission then? In biblical submission, the wife makes a choice to place herself as an equal under her husband. She comes under his lead, as Jesus does to the Father, and like the church should for Christ, for the effectiveness of the marriage and family. Just as the church works best when Jesus is the functional leader, so the marriage and family work best when the man is lovingly leading and serving his wife and children. Unfortunately, however, this beautiful ideal is often not a reality. 
Peter knew that many wives in the church he wrote to were married to unbelieving or disobedient men. And when the ideal is not happening, there is sometimes a question about how far submission should, should go. To that, we should answer, it should never go into ungodliness. This is clear because Peter said that submission would include reverence for God in verse two, and also pure conduct. So if submitting to her husband requires a wife to disobey God, she must not submit. Just as Christian citizens will do all they can to obey the governing authorities without crossing into sin, so the Christian wife will do all she can to follow her husband yet without sin. So Jesus is the model for the believing wife. But number two, exile wives want to persuade towards Jesus. Exile wives want to persuade towards Jesus. Look again at verse one and two. Peter says the reason for doing this is so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now this is a fascinating statement from Peter. You know, when Paul wrote about marital submission, which I've already referenced, he used theological reasoning. God created man first and gave him that role. Just as the son follows the father, even though they're equal, so the wife should follow the husband. That's theological reasoning. But Peter's not making a theological case for submission, but an apologetic one, an evangelistic one. He wants people to know Jesus. So he wanted the church to behave in ways he thought would lead to as many people as possible knowing him. And he thought unbelieving husbands might be one to Christ without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now it's important to note the method Peter thought would persuade many husbands to turn to Christ. First, he thought they would be more prone to receive a wordless message. This is really counterintuitive because when someone doesn't know their need for God and the gospel, believers want to explain with words their need for God and the gospel. And this includes believing wives. But Peter wanted Christian wives to show their unbelieving husbands the power of the gospel through the way that they lived. Just as Christian citizens are to put to silence the opponents uh, by devoting themselves to good works, as we saw in chapter 2, verse 15. And just as Christian servants should shock the workplace by enduring even when treated unfairly, so Christian wives should jolt their unbelieving husbands with their actions and not with their words. But Peter also said that these wives would be respectful and have pure conduct in verse two. Now it'd be natural to think that he's talking about the way that the wives are to treat their husbands, you know, respectful and with pure conduct. But his letter is actually full of exhortations telling Christians to walk respectfully toward God. And that fear of the Lord is what Peter's talking about here. He wants Christians, including wives, to live in a way that communicates God's authority over their lives. And pure conduct will be the result. Not because a husband or master or politician told us to do something, but because we fear God. This is usually 
the most effective approach. A wordless message, especially in the home, in the situation Peter envisions. Uh, Imagine a pizza restaurant employing a guy to go stand out on the corner, perhaps with one of those big arrow cardboard signs, and he's spinning it around, flipping it around, and everybody that drives by, he's yelling and shouting at them, pizza, pizza, come get pizza. Well, that's one way to try to convince someone to purchase pizza. But there's another way. My favorite pizza place is Gianni's Pizza in Monterey, and they just make really good pizza, And as they're making it, they let the fumes, the smell of that pizza waft out of their building and out onto the street. Pretty soon, people walking by and driving by have this desire, I want pizza. It's a better and more wordless way to get the message across. It's interesting because one of the best theologians of history Augustine actually watched his own father come to Jesus in this way. For years, his mom served her unbelieving husband, Augustine's father. But finally, when he was about to die, he submitted himself to Jesus. Augustine actually wrote about this in his prayer journal to God. And what he wrote is this. He said, she, my mother, she gained him for you. What a beautiful way to evangelize. The third thing I want you to see today is that exile wives, they understand true beauty. They understand true beauty. Let's read about that in verse three and four. Peter said, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. All right, now this sentence is another sentence in this passage that is ripe for misunderstanding, okay? We, we live in a time where we are, I think in many ways, rightfully sensitive to anyone telling women how to look or to dress. For far too long, men have looked however they wanna look and not many voices rise up to police their behavior, but women all over the world in various cultures are told what they must or must not wear. Even in our recent Olympic games, there were some minor uproars on both sides of this. In some of the sports, organizers were confronted about the skimpy outfits that they were making women wear, while the men performing the same sport were more fully clothed. On the other hand, at least one female track athlete rebuked an official for who told her, confronted her, that her shorts were too small. She made it clear, I can wear whatever I want. However, Peter's not following a long line of religions that seek to regulate the clothing of its female adherents. Peter meant that Christian women must know that their main source of beauty comes from within, in the heart, and is imperishable. That, that idea that your main source of beauty is not outward but inward is consistent with the rest of Scripture, much of which praises women for their unique external beauty in the sight of God and man. Even in the context of Peter's statement, he's going to, in verse 5 and 6, praise 
many of the Old Testament women for their character. But when you go back and read the Old Testament, they are also praised for their outward beauty and appearance. But what Peter wants is for godly women to know that their internal beauty is much more precious in God's sight, and therefore in the sight of anyone who is godly. This makes sense when you look at the actual words that Peter used. He did not say, don't let your beauty be external. He said, don't let your adorning be external. Now, some translations try to add clarity to what Peter meant by all of this. By uh, when he said, uh, when he talked about clothing, adding a description, fine clothing, you know, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, and fine clothing. But Peter only wrote the Greek word for clothing. He didn't say what kind. It's just all clothing. But it would be nonsense to understand Peter as saying, don't braid your hair, don't wear gold jewelry, and don't wear clothes. No, that's not what Peter means. What Peter means is that a godly woman should not find her primary beauty in anything external. It's important for exile wives and all Christian women, for that matter, to resist society's message that their appearance is where their true beauty lies. You see, that's the world that we live in. Even when our world prioritizes gender equality or claims goodness, much of culture pushes a self-assertive, sex-obsessed, materially prosperous, and physically perfect outward image as the ideal for women. But this runs counter to the word of God. There we learn that God is interested in the heart and that a woman's beauty does not have to peak in her younger years. Proverbs 31, verse 30 says that charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. As believers, I think we have to watch out for entanglement or enslavement to the world's value system. Our fitness level, our look, or our clothing can all entrap us and give us the confidence and the security that we really should be getting from God. And when you live by that sword, you die by that sword. So if you get your value from looking good, what happens on the days or the decades when you don't? I, for one, believe that fashion and beauty must be put in their proper place. To me, I think they can be an expression of the gospel and the lordship of Christ. Our fitness or taking care of our bodies can be a way that the spirit evidences the fruit of self-control and discipline in our lives. Our beauty can serve as a testimony of God's ability to create beauty from ashes. Even our clothing can serve as a way to demonstrate that Jesus is the Lord of our lives. If we dress in a way that would honor him, the one who clothes us with righteousness. To me, attitudes like this are better than just looking for a line not to cross. Instead, believers can redeem fashion and beauty by living them out for God's glory, all while acknowledging that they are nothing compared to the beauty of the inward person. 
Another thing I want to say here about this passage is that Peter is not rebuking Christian women who have quote-unquote big personalities. When he said there's an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, very precious in God's sight, he did not mean that a funny or quick-witted or leadership-oriented woman is out of line. But within the context of following in marriage and their walk with God, it is good to be gentle and quiet in spirit, in spirit, internally. Internally, we should long for our inner person to be beautiful and submissive and gentle before God. God sees this and is pleased. So though I know that people are trying to look good for as long as they can, believers should not fall into the trap of chasing external beauty harder than we chase godliness. We are all getting older. Paul said it this way. He said, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. But too many are spending thoughts, prayers, money, and time pursuing outward appearance that they should be spending on their internal appearance. It can be, brothers and sisters, a bottomless pit. Many of us spend tons of time looking into the mirror, but don't often hold up the mirror of God's word to more accurately see our inner person. But the inner person is who matters more. And our inner character can become more and more beautiful as the years tick by. You know, I for one, I'm like lots of people. I want to have as much hair on my head (laughs) as I can, as much strength as I can, as little fat as I can, for as long as I can, but not at the expense of godliness. I plan on dying one day as an ugly old dude who is attractive because he's godly, gracious, loving, and wise. So an exile wife knows these things. But let's end with one final section where I want to say this. Exile wives are secure when marriage is hard. Look at what he says in verse five and six. He says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Okay, here what Peter does is he holds out holy women from the Old Testament, uh, especially Sarah. He calls them godly people, godly wives who were secure in God even when their marriage was hard. I don't know if you're familiar with Sarah and Abraham, uh, but you can read their story in the book of Genesis. We just finished Genesis a few months ago in our Tuesday night through the Bible study. And her story is that her husband, Abraham, was chosen by God for great blessing. And because Abraham was justified when he believed God, he became the father of faith. But being Abraham's wife, just because he was the father of faith, didn't always mean that life was easy. For one, there were some crucial times that Abraham listened to Sarah when he shouldn't have. Her counsel to him about how to produce an heir through their female servant was catastrophic. But then there were times that Abraham operated in fear. And in those cases, Sarah was especially vulnerable. On two occasions, Abraham told Sarah to pretend to be his sister 
while they were in hostile territory. He was nervous that the kings of the region uh, would see the beauty of Sarah and kill Abraham in order to take her into their harem. So he said, say that you're my sister. As, my, as, as her brother, he felt that he had a better chance at survival. But all of this, of course, endangered Sarah. Yet Peter rejoices that Sarah obeyed, that Sarah followed Abraham even into his folly. How did she do it? Well, she hoped in God. That's what Peter says. She hoped in God. She did good, and she didn't fear anything that was frightening. You know, it was a terrifying experience during those times to follow Abraham, but her fears were calmed by hoping and trusting in God. You see, even when marriage is hard, especially for the wife, the believing wife is secure in God. If your husband won't work, God will provide for you. If your husband wants to be a professional gamer, God can give your life meaning. If your husband is foolish, God can preserve you. If your husband won't obey God, God can watch over you. If your husband puts your finances or your future in jeopardy, God has a secure future for you. You are secure in God. So for the question of if I submit to this man, what will happen to me? Peter's answer is look at Sarah. God honored her, God protected her, God prospered her. And she, partly because she followed her husband even when it was difficult, she was secure in God. Brothers and sisters, Christian marriages will look different from the world that we live in. And I dare say many of the things we looked at today are very different from the society that we are living in today. And I dare you to take a look around at our own immediate culture, not out in the news, not out in places that you don't know about really, but in our own little backyard. And ask yourself, is there that godly submission in general? And where do I see that defiance or that uprising against uh, the husband being the leader in the home? Ask yourself, is there a motivation in many of the marriages that I see for uh, the person on the other side to be one more and more to Jesus, drawn to him? And is there an emphasis on the outward or the inner person, the beauty of the heart that's incorruptible? And is there a trust in God that says, I am secure in him? Brothers and sisters, exile marriage is going to be different from the world we live in. And so next week, we'll talk about exile husbands. God bless you, church. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.